Justin. Appreciate that. It's good to see you this morning. Glad that you're here. And glad that there's so many that are joining us online, as Justin prayed and Justin said. We do have several, some even joining from uh, the ICU and from their homes, wrestling with a lot of sickness right now. Uh, We're glad that you're here with us as well. If you're a guest with us, we've been working through a short summer series. We typically take a break from what we typically study. Uh, We've been studying through Exodus for the last several months, and we took a break to talk about uh, gospel community. That's what we've been talking about. We've been looking at what it is and how we can experience it, uh, what it ought to be like, what we ought to experience when we uh, are uh, truly experiencing gospel community, as the Bible describes it. We've been looking at some key passages that the Bible puts forward, that we are redeemed to a new community, that it's a part of our identity. It's not optional. When we are redeemed and given a new identity in Christ, we are also redeemed to a new community. And we've been talking about that for the last several weeks. And we come to our last week of this series, and we're going to look at the text that Justin uh, read just a second ago from John chapter 13. Uh, What we've seen so far is that we're redeemed and rescued into a new community, that we are supposed to fight for the unity that Christ died to rescue and redeem and give us, that we use our, and leverage all that we are and all of our gifts to, to serve and to love one another. Uh, and then we also are, we have to be mindful that we are being redeemed into one new man and therefore we have to do everything we can to love uh, one another. Today what we look at is this really important passage in the Gospel of John. We studied it, actually, I look back, uh, it was the fourth week that we had to go online uh, when, the, when the pandemic first started, and uh, we looked at this passage, but we didn't look uh, extensively at just these few verses. And so we're going to see three things this morning. First, the new command that Jesus gives, and then he attaches a new motive for giving that command. The new command is to love one another, but he attaches a new motive, and that's a twofold motive we'll see this morning. And then lastly, we'll see that it, he also gives us new purpose for loving one another. That it's part of our identity, but it's also infused with new purpose. That it's not just about us. That we have to get this right because it's also about a gospel witness to the world. And we'll see that in the last verse there. So these three points, let's look at these. The the new command. Jesus gives this new command to love one another. On the heels of him turning the corner and, and turning towards the cross... In chapter 13, Jesus now issues and begins to issue several last words before he lays his life down. And as you know, if you've been in those situations, the, the, the last words on someone's dying bed, deathbed, are very important. The things that they think matter are significant. And, and so Jesus is giving us those, and so we need to pay attention to those, these words here in these verses. And he says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Now, that might strike you. That's nothing new. It seems like love is what the Bible is constantly calling us to, to love one another. And if we go back to Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, we see that, in fact, this has already been issued. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So what's new about this new command? What's distinct? What's new here that Jesus is issuing? And what we quickly realize is that the newness, the new distinction, is the standard by which we love one another. That he's issuing a new standard, a new measuring rod, 
a new mechanism by which we measure how we are intended to love one another. And I think this is so critical and so important. Because if we were to say, or to hear him say, just love one another, then we'd say, well, that's great, that's awesome. I mean, yes, I, I hope that someone loves me, and I hope that you lo- I love you. And, and, and then we'd begin to really wrestle with, well, what kind of love? You know, what's the extent of the love I'm supposed to show you? We would begin to immediately self-define the love or the type of love that we think we're supposed to give one another. Left to ourselves, we will always self-define. We'll always define, is it, is it emotional love that I'm supposed to give you? Is it, is it friendship love I'm supposed to give you? Is it erotic love? Is it transactional love? Contractual love? What kind of love am I supposed to give you? And if we are left to ourselves, we will shrink the love that Jesus expects us to give down to our own simple, self-centered definitions. But fortunately for us, Jesus gives us the standard. He gives us the definition of the type of love that he is expecting. And he says it, just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. In fact, he repeats this in John 13, 34, and again in John 15, 12 to 15. It's significant. Because when he repeats something, it's something we're supposed to pay attention to. And that's what he's doing here. In both cases, Jesus is building on the command to love one another as We would be loved, love your neighbor as yourself. He's building on that and saying not simply as yourself, but by this new greater standard. He's raising the bar. I expect you to love as I, Jesus, have loved you, disciples. Do you hear that? That, That's that's significant. That raises the bar tremendously. So the question comes up, how did Jesus love his disciples? In the immediate context, in the first few verses of chapter 13, we see Jesus, who has, who's the king of all kings, the Lord of lords, the one with all power, with all authority, get down on his knees and wash the dirty, smelly feet of his disciples. Disciples that will fail him. Disciples that will betray him. Disciples that don't deserve his grace or his love. And yet, the king of kings lowers himself, humbles himself to the point of a servant, gives himself sacrificially. In the context of the gospel of John, he lays down his life for his disciples, for his friends. In John 15, 12 to 13, it says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Same thing. And then he says this, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. He's defining the love that he is expecting between brothers and sisters, between disciples. That they lay down their life as he has laid down his life. So in the context of 13, he humbles himself to the point of a servant. In the context of the entire gospel of John, he humbles himself to the point of death. And this is the context of the New Testament in the entire Bible. Jesus submitted to the will of the Father, leveraging all of his gifts, strengths, power, and resources for the sake of his disciples, for the sake of you and I. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. By this we know love. 
How do we know what love is? How do we know the definition of love? If we're left to ourselves, we'll self-define. How do I know what true love is? Specifically, specifically, how do I know what gospel-centered love is? By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, for the brotherhood, for the family, for the brothers and sisters, those who have called on the name of Jesus as their Lord and Savior. 1 John 4, 10 and 11. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, that he put him forward as our substitute, as our sacrifice. Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If that's how Jesus loved us, if that's how God loved us, then that's how we ought to love one another. This is what Jesus is doing here. He's raising the bar. Not, not, you're not t- supposed to love one another by self-definition. You're not so, so, supposed to love one another according to your standard and your measurement. If you do that, you'll limit love to the type of love that you want to give. Or that you expect to receive. Instead, our standard is Jesus. We're expected to love as he loved us. And how did he love? He gave himself. Costly, sacrificial, gracious love is how he loved us. And that's how he expects the community of faith, the household of God, the family, the faith family to love one another. Humbling ourselves lowering ourselves for the sake of one another. Now, what what he's describing here is a death to self-love, a death to my kingdom, a death to my agenda, a death to my way, an elevation to your kingdom and your way, and, and an elevation of you to consider you as better than myself, to consider you as greater as your needs, greater than my own, to lower myself and to consider you better and greater. It's to deflate ourselves. What he's describing here is covenant love. It is endless, gracious, abounding love. That's how he loved us, and that's how he expects us to love one another. We just sang about it. We will never see the end of his love. The the language in the New Testament, the psalmist repeats it hundreds of times, steadfast love. It's his overabounding, hesed love, loyal love, unending, never-ending, always love, regardless of the expectation of what is returned, regardless of the condition of you and I. That's how he loved us, and that's how he expects us to love one another. Maybe it would be helpful to flip this, just to understand this backwards, or in, in another way of understanding this, is how does the world love? It loves contractually. It, it loves trans, transactionally. It, it, it loves conditionally. We love others. We love the world. We, we, we love, even sometimes it creeps into how we love the church, we love it transactionally. We love conditionally. We love as vendors. If you've ever done any kind of business with any service, you're always looking at one and saying, okay, I'll go with you for your goods and services and and, and your price that you set on that, but I'll stay with you only as long as your price meets and beats everyone else. Otherwise, I've got an eye to, to jumping ship, to moving on, to going to someone else. I will look somewhere else. 
That's contractual love. That's not the kind of love that we see in the gospel. That's not the kind of love we see in Jesus. That's not the kind of love that's preached from the beginning to the end of the Bible. That's not covenantal love. Loyal, steadfast, regardless of the condition of the other. We see this in Romans. Paul says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Before we could ever clean ourselves up. Before we could ever contribute anything. With no expectation. Before we ever contributed or cleaned ourselves up, Jesus laid down his life for us. And here he says, I want you to love how I love. I want you to love in this way. Sacrificially. Costly. Graciously. Giving of yourselves. Spent for the sake of the brotherhood, the sisterhood, the family, meeting one another's needs. That leads us to the new motive he attaches here. He attaches really two motives. You ask the question, why would I ever do that? Why would I ever give myself up for someone else? Why would I ever forsake my, my agenda for, the, for yours? Why would I ever lower myself? Why would I ever do that? And maybe you ask, how can I possibly ever do that? In both cases, Jesus gives us a new motive, and it's a twofold motive. The first is it's a command. Sometimes we downplay holiness and obedience and the commands of God and the commands and instructions of Jesus, but he's giving a clear command, and we can't jump over that word. A new commandment I give you. He says it again in, in John 15, 12. It's not, he, he takes the word new out. He says, this is my commandment. That you love one another as I have loved you. This is, there's no mistaking this. There's, this is not an accident. This is, a, this is a command. This is an instruction. This is, this is something he expects us to obey. Not debate. It's not optional. It's not up for discussion. If Jesus is the king, he's king over everything, including how I interact with you. And how you interact with me. How I love you. How I serve you. How I give to you. How you do that for me. And how we do that for one another. He's issuing a new command. And there's, this is another indication of how important this is. There's only two places in the entire Gospel of John where Jesus uses the word command. It's here and in John 15, 12. And in both places, it's a command to the disciples, the believers, the followers of Christ, to love the other disciples the other followers of Christ. Add to that, in this verse, these two verses, he says it three times. In verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. We know in anything, when a teacher repeats himself, that is important. On top of that, it says, it's his last instructions here before he goes to the cross. On top of that, we know when he studied the Bible and when things are repeated three times, that's something we're supposed to key into. Jesus is issuing an intentional, specific command that he expects us to obey. All that we've talked about for four weeks about gospel unity and how we live together, how we take our identity, the new relationship we have in Christ, and then live it out in the midst of our new community. It's not a suggestion. 
It's not optional. It's a command from Jesus. I think we need to let that sit on our shoulders for a few minutes and feel the weight of that. It's not up for debate whether we pursue unity, though we might disagree, though we might be at odds. It's not up for debate. It's not up for discussion. It's clear Jesus is making an emphatic point. And I think this is another reason this is so important. So I said a second ago that it's important because if we're left to ourselves, we'll not only define, we'll define the type of love, but if, we, if we're left to ourselves, we will define who gets that love. If we're left to ourselves, we will define the type of love, but we'll also define the people who we will give that love to. And who will we love? We will shrink the love that Jesus expects us to give down to the level of who we like, who looks like us and agrees with us and talks like us, who fits our expectations. But that's not what Jesus says here. Jesus says that we are to love, the disciples are to love the other disciples. That means anyone who claims the name of Jesus from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language is who we are expected to sacrificially give ourselves for and love graciously and generously. So not just the people that look like us, not just the people who act like us or talk like us or always agree with everything that we say, not just those, but all. Jesus is speaking to disciples and he's speaking to the household of faith, the family of God, and commanding them to love one another. And you might think, well, that's really odd. Why would he have to tell disciples to love other disciples? Why does he have to issue this as a command? Why does he have to tell us to love one another? Have you spent five minutes in a church? <laughs> if you're a parent and you have more than one kid, you know exactly why he has to command disciples to love other disciples. You have to tell brothers and sisters to love. No, don't hit your sister. No, don't take that, that toy. No, love. That's your sister. That's your brother. That's the one. That's family. We don't do that. He's issuing a command here and expects us not to love who we want to love or when we want to love or where we want to love, but to love our brothers and sisters. This means that our love for brothers and sisters cannot be and is not limited to a specific time, a specific place, or a specific people. That it's not limited to when we see fit or where we see fit or who we see fit to receive it. We're expected and commanded to love one another and not put a definition or restriction on who receives that love in the family of faith. Listen again to Leviticus 19.18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So in the context of Leviticus 19, it's the context of the nation of Israel. And the command there is to love your neighbor as yourself. Neighbor is countrymen. And then he says, just above that, that we're not to bear, they were not to bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. So what we see there is that the, the command to love is first and foremost about the nation of Israel. Love the nation of Israel. No, love your, 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 
your ethnicity, the, the similarity, love those who are in your circle in the nation of Israel. Now, later we see that it's also a love that is included those who come into the fold, the sojourner and the foreigner. But it's first and foremost in that context, the nation of Israel. But Jesus is broadening the command. When he says to disciples that you are to love your brother and sister, other disciples, love one another, he is talking about anyone who names the name of Jesus, who submits to him as king. That is now your brother or sister. And when they weep, you weep. When they rejoice, you rejoice. That is who you are called to love and live life with. We saw it last week in Ephesians chapter 2 that that Jesus died to, to make the two, Jew and Gentile, one new man. And then he goes on and he adds the metaphors that we're being made into a new family, a new citizenship, a new temple in which God will dwell. So Jesus is, is securing this new identity vertical relationship that is also securing a new community and we're intended to apply that relationship to one another. This means that the command to love here, our brothers and sisters, is regardless of situation, regardless of their class, regardless of their economic status, regardless of their geographic location, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their race, regardless of their age, regardless of their gender. We are called to love the brotherhood, the sisterhood, the family of God. And as we've already said, that means to lay our lives down for one another. If you look in the scriptures, you can see dozens and dozens of examples of this call and this command, but I think there's no better place than in Acts chapter 10. When Peter was, was wrestling with, who is the gospel for? And Peter is one day on the top of a roof, and he's hungry, and he has a vision, and, and God lowers this in this vision, this canopy down, and it's full of all kinds of animals that Peter deems as unclean. And he does it three times, and three times Peter says, I can't eat that, it's unclean. And God says, don't label or name something unclean that I have named or labeled clean. And as, on the third time it comes down, Peter hears a knock at the door and there are three Gentiles standing at the door sent by their Gentile master, Cornelius. Because Cornelius, a Gentile, had a vision at the same time Peter was having a vision that the Holy Spirit was telling him, go and get the man named Peter in that particular city and have him come and tell you about the gospel. Peter goes to Cornelius' house. Peter shares the good news of the gospel, the whole story of Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection on our behalf. Cornelius and his entire household are converted to Christ, give their lives to Jesus. And it's at that point Peter recognizes that the Holy Spirit's work is not limited to only Israel, that it is expanding, it's going beyond Israel to the nations, to the Gentiles. But just like us, Peter forgets the truth of the gospel regularly. And so it takes a community to remind him of that truth. And in Galatians chapter 2, Paul recounts a story of how Peter was eating with him, with Paul, he was eating with Gentiles, associating with Gentiles. Why? Because he understood that the gospel had gone forth beyond Israel to the Gentiles. But then some Judaizers show up, and Peter immediately 
forgets, immediately is concerned about approval and what others think, and he, he backs away from the table of the Gentiles. He, he re- withdraws himself and only associates with the Judaizers. And Paul says, I confronted Peter to his face. With what? The gospel. And he told Peter he was not ortho-walking or walking according to the gospel. That Peter understood that the Gentiles were also adopted in as part of the family of God and that they were being loved by Peter. But when Peter withdrew and only associated with the Judaizers, he was repeating an anti-gospel that they've got to clean themselves up before I'll associate with them. They've got to have it together before I'll associate with them. They've got to be one of us. They've got to be circumcised. They've got to perform before I'll associate with them. And Paul says, I confronted him to his face. I confronted him with the gospel and reminded him that's not the truth of the gospel. What's happening in all of this? Peter is being confronted in the context of community with the gospel being held up in front of him, inviting him to come back to the table, recognizing that that if we've confessed Jesus as, as Lord and Savior, we are now one family. This is, it's such a beautiful story. What we see here is the first motive that Jesus gives is a commandment, an order, an imperative with the expectation that we obey. But I said there was a second motive, and it's in the text in the second half of verse 34. There's a command motive because Jesus issued the command, told us to do it. But a command motive will get us to the table. It might get us going, but it won't sustain us. We need something more. And what Jesus gives us is the more. He gives us the gospel. He gives us grace. The second motive is a grace motive. He says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Colon. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. That's repeated in John 15, 13, 1 John 3, 16, 1 John 4, 11. This, if we pull that, that, that after that colon, there's a sentence, there's a, this qualifying sentence. It, it, it gives us, again, the new standard by which we love one another, but it also gives us the new motive. If we pull that second phrase, second sentence apart, if we reverse it, it says, you are to love one another, just as I loved you. There's the standard, there's the, there's the expectation. But if we take it exactly as it's written, just as I have loved you, you were to love one another. In other words, when we read it like that, we hear, because Christ first loved me in this way, I can't help but love you in this way. As I, as I meditate on, as I stare at The gospel, as I stare at what God did for me in Christ Jesus, propitiation, putting him forward as my substitute, offering him as as my substitute on the cross, that he lived the life I could not live and died the death I could not die, that I deserve to die, that he did that for me, despite me lifting my fist to God, despite me rebelling, despite me being disobedient, despite me spitting in his face, despite me not giving him respect, despite me not responding in love and kindness and grace to him, that he loved me even though I did those things. I can't help but be moved and melted and motivated to give that to you. 
it's only as I stare at what Jesus did on the cross on my behalf that I'm ever moved, melted, and motivated to do that for you. Because Christ loved me in this way, I will love you in this way, but I'm also empowered and enabled to love you this way. I just don't know if I can love this difficult person. I just don't lo- know if I can give them respect even though they don't return. And I don't know that I can, I can extend grace even though they, they just abuse it over and over again. I just don't know if I can do this. How do I do this? You stare at the cross and you see that that's what Jesus did for you. That he loved you though you were disobedient. The gospel transforms lives and the gospel transformed life will result in gospel transformed relationships. It must. It has to. I love, we, we recommend this book a lot around here, Gospel Primer for the Christian Life. Milton Vincent is the author and he says it this way. When my mind is fixed on the gospel, I have ample stimulation to show God's love to other people. For I'm always willing to show love to others when I'm freshly mindful of the love that God has shown me. He goes on, also the gospel gives me the wherewithal to give forgiving grace to those who have wronged me. For it, the gospel, reminds me daily of the forgiving grace that God is showing me. He was so gracious to me and so kind to me and so forgiving to me and And so generous to me, though I didn't deserve it. If I measure love by my own definition, I will shrink it always down to who I want to love and who I think deserves it. And I will only ever give it to those who I think deserve it, who who I think fit my expectations. But Jesus doesn't allow that. He calls us to look at him and how he's loved us and then live that out in the family of faith, in the brotherhood, in the sisterhood, in the new household. That leads us to our third point. Now, I think and I I believe, I know that Jesus absolutely understands how radically countercultural this is. And that's why he's issuing it. He absolutely knows that this is not the way the world loves. He'll say it in other places that my peace I give to you. He knows that the world's peace is radically different. My joy I give to you. He knows the world's joy is radically different. Here he's saying, I've given you my love and I want you to love in this way. And, I, and he understands that this is radically countercultural. He knows that when believers sacrificially give of themselves to their brothers and sisters, that it is one of the greatest evidences of the power of God to change a life. It's it's one of the greatest evidences that Jesus is real and that he has the power to change and that there is real hope for the future. Let's explore this. This new purpose, this new result, this new mission that he, he infuses into our love for one another. It's in verse 35. He says, by this. By what? By the way you sacrificially love, by the way you covenantally love, by the way you you graciously love one another, the world will know you are my disciples. Do you hear it? There is radically new purpose 
in me loving you and you loving me. We love one another because it's commanded that we do it. We love one another because I've been given a new identity and a new community in which I'm expected to do that. We love one another as we meditate on the gospel and, and we are moved and melted to do it, but we also love one another because the world is watching and there is profound gospel implications for us striving for unity and loving one another. That by our love together, we give evidence that Jesus is real, that he has the power to change hearts and lives, and that there is really, truly a future kingdom to come where we will, though diverse, be united as one around one common cause, looking, staring, worshiping Jesus. And how does the world know that? As I love you the way Jesus loved me. As you love me the way Jesus loved you. As we love one another the way Jesus loved us. We give testimony to the world. Listen to how he says it twice in John chapter 17. It's his prayer. It's the high priestly pinnacle prayer of John chapter 17. And he says it twice. I pray. He's praying to the Father. Heavenly Father, I pray that they my disciples and those who will hear after them would be perfectly one. Why? That the world may know you sent me and love them the way you love me. I, I don't know if it can be said too highly enough or, or if it can be overestimated. I don't know if that, that is just so profound what Jesus is praying there and saying there. He's saying that as I pray that, that this faith community, that, that my, my disciples, the, the, the global body of Christ, the, all the local assemblies would be one. And in their oneness, I pray that they would be one so that the world would know that you sent me, that I'm real, that I am the Messiah, I am the Savior, I am the King of the world, that I have the power to change hearts and lives. And I pray that they would be one so that the world would know that you sent me and love them as you, Father, love me. There's so much we could spend months just on that, even as you love me. But what is Jesus saying here? It's as we embody the gospel together, as we understand the reconciliation we have with God and then begin to flesh that out together as we embody the gospel together, all those one another's we looked at last week. It's then that the world will begin to believe that Jesus is real. This means that our love for one another, our unity together, our sacrificial giving for one another is infinitely far more important than any of us realize. It's of far more importance than any of us could possibly imagine. It is not only for our good, given to us as a gift, it's also for the world to know that there is really a God and that Jesus is the Savior. It has gospel implications for the world, and that means loving one another has infinitely greater purpose Think about this. Let's think about a few examples. When we love the way that Jesus loved, we've said it already, we display a gospel-transformed life. Let's reverse that. Ask a question. What does a gospel-transformed life look like? 
it looks like someone laying their life down. It looks like someone giving of themselves sacrificially, costly, graciously. It looks like Jesus. Where do I see that in the context of the local body? When we love the way Jesus loved, we display the the power of God to transform self-centered, sinful people into sacrificial servants. John says it this way in 1 John 3, 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers, the family, the faith family. So, so 1 John written to give assurance to believers, you and I, how do I know that I'm a follower of Christ? Do you have a love for your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? That's evidence of a radical change in your heart and life. Why? Because it's not natural. We are naturally bent on being individual, isolated kings in our own worlds, at odds with one another. When we lay down our kingdom and come together under one king, it's, it's evidence that something's changed in our hearts and our lives. If it's evidence for us, then it's evidence for the world. Another example, when we give away respect generously, even though maybe the ones we give it to we don't like or maybe they don't respect us in return, we display the countercultural way of the gospel. We display Jesus who valued us, gave his life on our behalf, gave us value and meaning and purpose and respect before we ever responded to him. Luke chapter 6, verse 32. Jesus says, if you love those who love you, What benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. In other words, the world's pattern is to love who they want to love, love those who love them back, love who they get value from. Jesus says, but when you love those who are difficult and obstinate and and sometimes at odds with you and disagree with you, when you love those who, who are not like you, you give away respect generously. You display the gospel transformed life. When we postpone, we talked about this, postpone judgment or procrastinate judgment. We talked a little bit about that last week. We, when we believe the best, when we walk a long way in understanding rather than immediately reacting to one another, rather, rather, rather than immediately cutting off someone who disagrees, or rather, rather than immediately scapegoating and sending someone away, when we postpone and procrastinate judgment, we display the radically alternate way of loving found in Jesus who loved sinners and rebels who deserved judgment. When we forgive and we do everything we possibly can to reconcile with a brother and sister, rather than leap to suing them in court, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. When we forgive and do everything we can to resolve and reconcile rather than immediately take our brothers and sisters to court. We're behaving in stark contrast to the pattern of this world. We're displaying the gospel transformed life. When we pursue trying every avenue possible before the last option of doing something like that, we're displaying a radically countercultural approach to relationships and reconciliation. When we serve our enemies rather than step over them, as Jesus described in the parable parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10, we're acting in contrast to the pattern of this world. When we fight for unity rather than abandon one another at the first whim of conflict, the first whiff of conflict, 
when we fight for, for no, 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 I'm not going to let this happen. No, 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 this conflict actually, it, it's, it's might, it might actually be for my good to learn in this situation. No, I'm not going to let this happen. I'm going to fight for unity. It might be for our good. It might be for the good of the whole, the body. No, 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 we're not going to allow anything to come. No, we're going to fight for unity to keep what Jesus died to unite. We embody the kind of covenant, steadfast love that Jesus offers us. He doesn't abandon us simply for every whim or whiff of disagreement or failure. When we love our brothers and sisters in this way, it's a testimony not to us or our ability. We can't love that way. It's a testimony to Christ in us. And this is what he's calling us to here. He's giving us this new commandment and he's giving us this this new motive and he's now infusing it with new purpose. It's not simply about you, though it should be, certainly first about the community of faith, that our identity in Christ, we're reconciled to him, reconciled to one another, we're fleshing out the gospel every day in our, our everyday interactions together, but it's not just about you. It's also about the world, that the world is watching and that when you love this way that we've talked about for these four weeks and then especially today, when you love this way, it's a signal flare to the world. Something is different there. What is it? It's Jesus. It's the gospel. Francis Schaeffer was a a worldview expert. He was an apologist, which means a defender of the faith, articulated well and defended the faith. He says it this way, We cannot expect the world to believe that the Father sent the Son, that Jesus' claims are true, and that Christianity is true, unless the world sees some reality of the oneness of of Christians. We simply can't expect the world to believe if we are loving and fighting one another the way that the world loves and fights one another. It's a profound apologetic defense of the faith. I think you can flip what Schaefer says there to the positive. When we do live like this in gospel community, it's like attracting moths to the flame. Why? Because the world is so desperate for this kind of love. It's not accepting regardless. It's, it's love regardless of who the person is, but in truth also holding up the gospel. And it's profoundly different than the world. It's not found anywhere else in the world. And it's what the world is desperately longing for. So as we end, as we, as we close this series, as we, as we close this today... We're told to love as Jesus loved, to give ourselves sacrificially to our brothers and sisters, even though that it might be difficult, even though they might be difficult. We're called to love this way. And if you assess, you know, that's impossible, then you're right. It is impossible. Apart from gospel change, apart from Jesus doing a work in our own lives, in our own hearts, removing the heart of flesh and giving us a heart of stone, giving us a heart of flesh, apart from the Spirit constantly calling us and nudging us, not only to the Father as He does, but also to the the adopted brothers and sisters that we are also called to love. Apart from that work, it is radically impossible. We desperately need Jesus. And we desperately have to stare, continue to stare at Him to understand who we are and how we're to love one another. We started this series 
talking about C.S. Lewis's analogy for friendship or metaphor for friendship. He says that friendship begins as two people are standing side by side staring at something. As they stare at that something, that commonality, that's when you look over and you go, oh, you too. Oh, really? You, me, the same, we're on the same page with whatever that is we're staring at. Bonhoeffer, C.S. Lewis, others, they all talk about the thing that is the common uniting bond for you and I is is not common sports or common things, though that's the beginning, maybe stage, it's earliest of friendship. Our commonality that is, that is unlike the world, our commonality is Christ. It's the work that he's done in our hearts and our lives. I made the, I used the analogy, I, I, I said, <laughs> made the joke about the Louvre. If we go to the, to the Louvre, if I took you to Paris, and I took you to the Louvre, the museum there, and I took you in to see the Mona Lisa, we would stand with all the other hundreds of people that stand in this room and we would probably be staring at the Mona Lisa and we'd probably look over and go, is it just me or is that really actually the smallest painting in the entire world? And we'd probably chuckle and we'd stare just like these people are staring in this picture here at the Mona Lisa. That's how it is every single day and you see how small that painting is. And as we stare together and as we talk together and we're sitting there looking at the Mona Lisa going, why, oh my goodness, why on earth did they put this little itty bitty painting in here? This is unbelievable. Why did they put this in this massive room? This massive room, you come in two doors just like those over there and you walk in and you immediately stare at the Mona Lisa and it sits on a big backdrop just like that right back there on that wall. And we would stare at it and we'd go, what on earth were they thinking putting this little painting? Why is everybody staring at this? Why is this such a big deal? What on earth? Why did they put it in this big room? And we would begin to turn and we'd look at the exact opposite wall from the Mona Lisa. And we would go, whoa. <laughs> that is the biggest painting I think I've ever seen in my life. And what we'd find out is that actually is the biggest painting in the entire Louvre. You can see the lady sitting, standing down below it right there. That unlike the Mona Lisa behind us, the little postage stamp with one little face, this is the biggest painting in the Louvre, and it has 130 faces. And we would just be blown away. Oh my goodness, that is the biggest painting I've ever seen. Look at the detail, look at the beauty, look at the, oh my goodness. And then it would dawn on us, what are we looking at? What do you think that is? What is that? And we'd read that little sign right down there in the lower right-hand corner, and what we'd see is this is a painting of the wedding feast at Cana, <laughs> where Jesus turned water into wine and gave us a glimpse of the greater joy of the greater kingdom to come. And as we stare at it, we look and we see, oh my goodness, right dead center in that painting, the artist wants us to see Jesus. And as you and I are staring at that painting, the only two people in the room, when all the crowds are staring at that postage stamp, all the other crowd, everybody else in that crowd is going to be looking, look at the Mona Lisa, oh my goodness, what are you doing? What are you staring at? Oh my goodness, that is unbelievable. And others will begin to turn and stare with us at what they were created to stare at. Jesus. It only starts as you and I lock arms together and remain focused on Jesus that the rest of the world begins to go, what is so radically different about you? Oh my goodness, Jesus. That's what gospel community is and that's the power it has in the world. And that's why it's so important for us to get it right. 
That's why it's so important for us to strive for it, to fight for it, to not just be spectators like the rest of the crowd staring at the postage stamp, coming in and kind of getting a glimpse at what we think community is. Instead, to lock arms with others, to fight in, in relationship, to stare at Jesus, to hold up the gospel to one another constantly, the portrait of Jesus. That's what gospel community is, and that's the power that it has on our lives. Let's pray. Father, Lord, this has been such an unbelievable series. There have been so many that have expressed that this is something that they've been trying to articulate or wrestle with or longing for, but not knowing how to or what it is. May this not just be another series where we talk about things. May this not just be another sermon where we just talk about things. May we let it move and melt our minds down to our hearts and out to our hands. May we do something about it. Above all, Lord, may we be a church that fights and strives for unity. May we be what you prayed for in John 17. That may we be unified. Not necessarily uniform. We don't have to look alike or all act alike. But we do have to be unified. Not on our version of love. Not on our definition of love. But on you, the one who loved us. May we be a church like this. May we all begin to get tastes and glimpses of the future kingdom to come. Of the, This is not an add-on to the Christian faith. This is the Christian faith. Living in in community together. Heavenly Father, I pray what Jesus prayed, that we would be one and that we would see the importance so that the world may know. That we'd see the importance for our own personal sanctification, but we'd also see the importance for mission, for evangelism, for the world. May we turn from our little postage stamp glimmers and glimpses of community from the little trinkets and treasures that we think will satisfy us. May we turn, Lord, to Jesus and not take our eyes off of him. May we be changed by that and changed together by that and may more people see it and may more people come to faith as a result. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So what's next for you? We, we've been talking through this series about wherever you're at in the spectrum of gospel community to take the next step, to nudge you along. Some of you are members, you're in community, you're serving. Um, how will you give yourself to the rest of the community and nudging others along? Maybe some of you need to covenant, which is what we talk about with membership. It means to say, I'm a follower of Christ and I want this family to be my adoptive family and I want to adopt them and I want them to adopt me. That's, that's covenant language. That's membership in a life of a local church. Maybe you need to take that step. I don't know. Maybe some of you need to figure out your gifts and, and discern that and, and look through the scriptures to understand that. You need a community around you to help you identify that and also you need to serve. And then maybe some of you need to take the next step past just socializing together to deeper, intimate relationships. That might be in a community group. It might be in a micro group or two or three together. But you're always focused on Jesus and focused on the word and holding it up to one another. Where, what's for you? What's your next step? I want to encourage you to consider those things, whatever that may be. Let's sing together.